The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Father, we, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to join as believers here in this place. Uh, we, we thank you for the, the freedom we have in, in a country that uh, we, we can unapologetically join together out in the public. We can have a picnic uh, uh, as, a, as a church family today. Uh, and so, Lord, we're, we're thankful for that. Lord, thank you for the, the, the worship that we've been able to, to worship and to exalt you already this morning, for you are worthy of that. Lord, we, we pray as we come, come to you. Um, Lord, as we look at the events of this week, we think of the, the fear, the, the instability, the, uh, uh, politically, socially, economically. Uh, Father, as we look at what, what's taking place in Europe, what's taking place here in North America, what's maybe taking place in our own homes. Uh, Lord, we, uh, even, even that, the offertory song, Lord, there's, there's a day that's coming that, we're, that scares us. And Lord, there, there's things in all of our lives. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you, you show your power, that, that uh, through you that we would be able to rest and to hide in that. But I pray as we look at your word, as we look at, at Luke chapter 19, that it would speak to us, that it would speak boldly to us, that uh, we would be encouraged not to just sit here and to soak up more, more teaching, but, Lord, to, to go out and live this out in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 19, and uh, it's a familiar passage. You can go ahead and stand up. We'll, get, we'll read that. Um, Luke chapter 19, <clears throat> verses 11 through 27. It's the parable of the ten minas. <clears throat> and so uh, this, this is what Luke writes. He says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he, began, uh, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had give, given the money to be called to him. That, they might, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. 
Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what, did, what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has, ten, who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that ev to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You may be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever in your life had an experience where you felt totally unequipped or unprepared for something that was about to happen? Like, like that nightmare that you've had. I, I'm sure many, this is a, a, a common nightmare where you, you get up. Uh, maybe it's just for preachers. I don't know. But you get up and, and you have no sermon. You have no text. Or, or you don't know what you're about to say. Or you're about to speak to a large crowd and you're there in your pajamas. Or something else. Maybe, you know, uh, you feel this way, not just in a nightmare or a dream, but maybe in, in real life you have a major presentation at work or, or an interview uh, or just a major change in your life that's coming. You just feel totally unequipped for it. I know I have two kids. I have a five-year-old son, George, who's, who came with me this morning. And uh, five years ago, five and a half years ago, when, when we brought George home from the hospital, he's born on Christmas Day. And he stayed in that he, he, uh, he had jaundice, and so we had to stay a few days extra. But when we finally brought him home, I just remember we brought him home, and he fell asleep on the car ride, and I put him up on the kitchen counter, and I just started going crazy. I was, like, cleaning. I, I was doing everything. And my wife looks at me, and she goes, what are you doing? I was like, you don't understand. When, that, when he wakes up, it's over. Our lives are done. Like, we got to get this done now. I felt completely unprepared for the task that, that uh, laid before me. Uh, you know, in that moment, we can feel anxious. We can feel uneasy. We can feel scared. Or, or maybe even embarrassed, embarrassed that we don't know uh, what we're supposed to do or, or what we're supposed to ask, and, and, it, and it paralyzes us to some degree. So, so as you think about that moment in your life or that nightmare you've had, you can relate to the disciples here. The disciples, as they approached Jerusalem here in Luke 19, they, they knew who Jesus was claiming to be, and they knew what awaited them in Jerusalem. Everything Jesus had been doing for, for a long period of time, was pointing to, to his arrival in Jerusalem. And, and here they are on the brink of it. He, they knew that he was, he was the Messiah. He was Christ, the Savior. He was the Good Shepherd. And we, we, we even see this. If you, if you look back in, in, at verses 9 and 10 of, the, the, uh, of chapter 19, this is the story of, of Jesus and Zacchaeus. So the very last thing that we look at before we get into this parable uh, is this story in which Jesus says, as Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. And hear this, it says, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, we may read this, and it may just go right over our heads. 
right? But, 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 but this is the context for which Jesus tells the parable. And this is the context for which Luke writes it to us, his readers. And when he's saying this in verse 10, that, Jesus, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, he's referring in not so subtly, what, subtle way back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11 and 12, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that, they have, been, uh, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So Jesus, in a not-so-subtle way, is saying, I am the Lord Almighty. I am the one who prophesied in Ezekiel 34. This is me. I'm coming. His disciples knew it. But yet, he, he, not only is he proclaiming this, but if we look at Luke 9.51, there's a key transition that takes place in the book of Luke. And, and after the, the, the confession of his disciples, it's, it's better recorded in the book of Matthew, but, but we, we know it as the Caesarea Philippi Confession, where he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some, of the, some say you're a prophet. Well, he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as the spokesman, says, well, you are the, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and so there's a key transition that we see in each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it takes place in Luke 9.51, when it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So everything that takes place before 951, he's teaching about who he is and what he's doing. And then 951 takes place, and he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Why does he set his face to go to Jerusalem? To die. And he tells his disciples over and over along the way. And so they know this. And here they are. They're, they're, they're on the brink of Jerusalem. They're almost there, and they know what's going to happen. And they feel completely unprepared for what is about to happen. I'm sure they're asking all sorts of questions. What, what's, what, what is, what it, how is this going to take place? What, what, what happens to me? What happens to my, my group of friends here? Where will we go? What will we eat? What will we do? Who's going to be in charge? What's it going to look like? Question after question. So Jesus, he tells this parable to provide comfort to them and to clear up some misconceptions concerning his arrival in Jerusalem and the kingdom of God. So first of all, we, 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 see, that he, we see this very clearly in 11, uh, verse 11. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he, he first of all wants to, to clear up the misconception that the, the, the kingdom was a physical kingdom and an immediate kingdom that was about to be ushered in upon arrival in Jerusalem. He would not be crowned the, the king. He would not be, be exalted. And, and Rome would not suddenly recognize his authority. He wanted to clear that up. He, 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 there would not be a revolt against the, the Roman authority. And so he begins this parable. And in the same way, we have to think, not only did Jesus actually do this, but then Luke takes Jesus' life and he puts it in a book for us so that we can read it. So not only did he want to give comfort to his disciples as they approached Jerusalem, he also wants to comfort us. He wants to comfort those who, who Jesus had, had, had died. He died on a cross. He resurrected. He had ascended. And they waited. And they waited. 
and they waited, and they thought, is he ever coming back? What happened? What happened to what he was talking about? And they thought we were supposed to, you know, the kingdom, it's near. It's supposed to be, be now. Why are we being killed? Why does Rome throw us to the lions? What's taking place here? And he writes it to us who, 2,000 years later, you know, when we, we look at this earth, when we look at North America, and I don't know about you, but I look at North America, and sometimes I can be a little bit pessimistic about the, the kingdom in North America. You know, 80 to 85% of Kansas City is far from God. I don't think that was a statistic 100 years ago. But, but gradually, that number is, is, is going up and up and up. It, it appears that the, the kingdom, that Christianity is on the run. And, and so he writes this to us to remind us God has not forgotten. He has not veered from his plan. And so what, what is he saying in this parable? Well, let's clear up some of, of the cultural issues that he writes. So he writes about this nobleman who went to a foreign land to receive a kingdom. This is, this is very cultural in that day. In B.C. 40, uh, Herod the Great, when, when the, the area of Palestine, uh, was, it was under chaos. Nobody was in charge, and, and just everyone thought they were in charge, and they were kind of like it is today. Uh, you know, and so, uh, so Herod, he goes to Rome, and he was, a, he was a well-respected person. He goes to Rome to receive the authority to return as the king. So, so Jesus is actually, he's telling this parable, but it, but it kind of retells the, the, the recent events, uh, the near recent events uh, of the area. And so uh, <clears throat> he, return, he receives uh, from the Roman Senate the kingdom, and then he comes and he returns as the king. Secondly, we see here that, that he calls ten servants. Well, you know, numbers uh, in, in the New Testament throughout Scripture can often be symbolic, and, and I would argue that they are here as well. Uh, that, that this is a, a round number, a whole number. It's representing the completeness. That it's not an exact ten. Ten servants that receive this. Uh, just because, as we see, you know, it only refers to three of them at the end of the story. But also we, we could ask, well, what's a mina? Because well, he, he, he gives ten minas, and so one mina represents three months' wages uh, in that day and age. So the nobleman is leaving, and he leaves all of his servants, those who are, who are dedicated to him, he leaves them with enough money for while he's gone. And also we see the, the other citizens here. The, 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 so there's servants and then there's citizens. And the citizens, what does it say about them? Uh, that they sent a delegation saying that we don't want this man to reign over us. And so this is also common practice. After Herod the Great died, once again chaos ensued. And, and so one of his sons went once again to Rome to receive the kingdom and uh, the Israelites said, no, 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 and they sent a delegation to say, we don't want this guy. So once again, this is, this is a common, common practice. And when the nobleman does return, he is now the rightful king with the authority to carry out judgment for all his citizens. So I'm sure we've looked at this story before. I'm sure you have read it before, but what, is it, what does it teach us? What is it that, that, well, how does it shape our lives? Well, it teaches us a lot about the kingdom, it teaches us about the king, its future, and its people. First of all, I, I, very clear, Jesus is the king. And his kingdom is made up of those who submit to his rule and reign. At his return, all people will be held accountable to him. He is the nobleman in this story. And he is the coming king. And we can act like his servants, or we can act like the citizens. 
Now, unfortunately for us, we have all acted like the citizens. Well, all of us are, are guilty of this. God has, has created this world in a perfect way, and, and, we're all, and he said, this is my plan, my design. This is right, and this is wrong. And, and all of us are guilty of, of rejecting that and to rebelling against God and saying, you know what? I will make it my way. I will do things my way, and I will not listen to God. We've replaced the truth about God for a lie about ourselves and placed ourselves as the king. We've acted like citizens and, and rebelled in that way. And because of this sin, we live in a broken world. The result of our sin is separation from God. And so we see, we see all the, the effects of that brokenness. We see crime. We see poverty. We see a lack of education. We, we see hatred towards our fellow man. We see racism. We see all sorts of things. Pollution. All of this is a result of our sin. We, we, we hurt one another and we're hurt by others. And we try and we try and we try to fix this. We, we, we see people try to fix this in, in, a, in various different ways. People, people turn to, uh, to relationships. If I can find the right guy, if I can find the right girl, my life will be, I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied. I, for myself, you know, I mentioned I have two kids, but we also had three miscarriages in between those two. And for me, a lot of the times, I was thinking, if, if we could, if I just wanted a big family. I love being a dad. It's like my favorite title in the, in the world. Like, you can call me pastor, missionary, whatever, but, but dad is the best, all right? And so I wanted to fill that with having lots of kids. And so that's what I attempted to do. Other people turn uh, towards politics, right? I mean, how many have just spent hours upon hours watching the news and getting, getting totally engrossed in this election cycle? And there's people out there. <laughs> I see some hands. But some people out there think, well, if, if we have the right person in charge or if we have the right policies, everything will be right. We try to fix our brokenness through these things, but it doesn't work. It will never work. We, they're like bungee cords. They just snap us right back into it. What we couldn't fix is why Jesus came. It's why he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's why he recognized he had to go and he had to die. And it's only through the cross that our penalty can be eliminated. Our punishment for our wrongdoing, our rebellion against God, can be erased, can be paid for, can be dealt with appropriately by Jesus on the cross. And if we turn from our sin, if we repent and we follow him, we believe and we act. We don't just have a head knowledge of it, but it causes a total shift in our being he becomes our king. He becomes our boss. He, rule, he rules our life. We submit to his rule and his reign. Then we can become his servants. Just like the servants here in the passage. And, and while his kingdom doesn't have, have a boundary, it does, we do carry a passport in this kingdom. And that passport is a changed heart. It is a circumcision of the heart, a submission to King Jesus. So we see this. We see this about the kingdom. We see about the king, that why he has come. But we also see the responsibility of the people to the coming king. What is, what is the command that he gives to, his, to the servants before he goes? He gives them ten minas, and he says in verse 13... Engage in business until I come. 
He doesn't say engage in business until the money runs out. He doesn't say engage in business for a couple weeks until you give up hope that I'm actually going to come back. He doesn't say, you know what, just try to make it. You know, he says engage in business. There is an expectation of, the, of, of Jesus, the nobleman who's going away. He's, there's an expectation that his servants will thrive. They will not just survive. A, a thriving economy makes the kingdom a better place. Think about this in, in the parable form. He, he tells them to engage in business, and he's going to come back, and he's going to rule over this. If they're engaging in business, there's a better economy for the king to come and rule over. And so he tells us, as his servants, to engage in business while he's gone. There is this expectation of us that we see not only in, in, in the command, but we see this in the performance review. All of us, we can, we can await this performance review. I'm sure many of you have had, have had a performance review at work. And, and all of us will have this individual performance review immediately upon his arrival. He calls his servants to find out what they had done while he was gone. And so there is a, a, an individual performance review. And in this individual review, you cannot hide behind your church family. You can't say, well, look at the work that my church has done. Or look at the work that the Southern Baptist Convention has done, or that North American Mission Board, or the IMB. Look at that work, because I've been a part of that. No, it's, it's an individual. It's about you. It's not about your church. It's about you. You can't hide behind your, your, your biological family, right? George can't, can't hide behind me one day and say, well, my dad was a pastor. You know, I can't hide behind my, my mom, who, who's been a, a saint of a woman, who, who's, who's uh, stood uh, firm in her faith for years and years. I can't hide behind my grandmother. I can't hide behind them. It's me. I will stand before God. You will stand before God. And in this review, the basis for the review is, is what? It's what they have done. What have you done with the mina? What were, have you done with the mina that you have been entrusted with? We see here the first two are found faithful. They're found faithful. He says, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So, so they, have, they have been faithful that, for this. They have engaged in business. They have made the kingdom a more profitable place for the king to rule over. The first thing that made them profitable, that made them uh, faithful, is they recognized what they had was not theirs to begin with. We see this in their response. The first came and said uh, before him, saying, Lord, your mina. It's not his mina. It's the king's mina. It's what he had been entrusted with. It belonged to the nobleman, and it, be and it was given for the sake of the kingdom, not for the sake of his personal fortune. But secondly, these first two, they took a risk. What if they lost it all? What if they went out and they engaged in business and they lost everything? And the king came back and, and, and they had nothing to give to him. They took a risk which proved profitable in the end. But, but thirdly, we see both of them are generously given even more because of their faithfulness. It's a very real reward. We, we shouldn't speculate or spend too much time on what that reward would look like. It's not very clear here. But, but we do see that they're given authority to rule alongside the king. 
according to their faithfulness, there is a very real reward. But then we also see the third servant, the third servant who is, who is found not faithful, who's, who is called wicked. Think, look at this. He, he makes excuses, and in his excuse, he's blaming the king for his own unfaithfulness. Let's pause for a second and think about, think about this. He has everything he needs. We, we looked at this before. He has been given a, a three months' wages. He's been given everything he needs to engage in business. It, it's not lacking anything. He had been given very clear instruction on what he was supposed to do with that mina, engage in business. And yet he blames his failures on the king. This strikes home a bit for me as I'm sure it does for you as well. Our lack of faithfulness to Jesus' commands is never Jesus' fault. When we fail to be obedient to him, it's not because the stakes were too high. It's not because he asked too much of us. It's because we have failed to be obedient as his servants. We failed to trust him and his faithfulness towards us. And because of this, the king condemns him. He refers to him as wicked. And then what he has is taken away from him. Even what he has is taken away. The people of the kingdom, those that are submitted, those that carry the passport of the kingdom, that are submitted to King Jesus, they are marked by faithful obedience to King Jesus. And they labor within the, the economics of the kingdom. So what does your fruit say about you? What are you doing with your mina? What does that look like in your life? Well, we have to answer this question. What does the mina represent? I, I, I purposely delayed. I, I kicked this one down the road a little bit. But what does that mina actually represent? I think we could, I could stand here before you and I, we could say, yes, it represents money, uh, the, the stewardship that God has given you over the resources. It represents your time. It represents your, the wisdom that he's given you. It, the spiritual giftedness re it represents children. It represents everything that we possess in some aspect. He has given this to us, and he has given, made us stewards. He, he's given us a responsibility to, to take care of this and to engage in business with it. But, but I think it represents much more than that. I would say to you that the mina itself represents the gospel. First of all, what have you done with, when personally confronted with the gospel? Have you submitted to King Jesus? Do you know of your sin? Do you know of your rebellion against God? The separation it's caused between you and God? And have you trusted in Him? But more than that, as one who has been reconciled to God, one who has been brought near to God. I love that, that description that from, from Come Thou Fount that you gave, Blake. Uh, at one who has now been brought near to God, what are you doing? 2 Corinthians 5, 17-20 says, He who has reconciled us has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. What are you doing with the gospel? What are you doing? There, there's no greater kingdom work than making disciples. Matthew 28, the, the very last thing he leaves his disciples with is what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. 
make disciples. There is no greater work within the kingdom. There's no greater business. There's no better way that we can build the kingdom economy than by making other disciples. This is what it comes down to. And you know what? Disciples, they don't just magically appear. I, I, I can't go into my... I mean, prayer is a, is a great thing. We could spend months you know, preaching on prayer and spending time in prayer. But I can't go into my prayer closet and, and magically walk out and suddenly there's a new disciple there. It doesn't work like that. They are made. Just like a, a baby is made and it grows and develops and becomes an adult. A disciple is made. Make disciples. Therefore, if the mina is the gospel... And the business, the engaging in business is disciple-making. What, what would your personal, uh, individual performance review look like? What would your performance review look like? If that's, if that's the key to it all. I know this. I could step on some toes here, and I will. <laughs> the truth is, in North America, we are lousy at personal evangelism. We are lousy at it. Some statistics I'll throw out here for you. I, I mentioned earlier 80 to 85% of the city of Kansas City is lost. It's 2.2 million people. We're growing at, the city is growing at 0.17% a year. So that means if we want to be the same amount of lostness next year as we are this year, we have to do some work, right? We can't just expect that, keep the status quo, and, and we'll continue. No, if we don't do anything, that number, just, that number keeps rising, in fact. And so if we want to make a dent in it, all right, let's say we're not, we're not satisfied with 80%. And we say, no, I can't tolerate, I can't take it anymore, it's got to be lower. It's got to be 79%. We're going to do everything we can to get it to 79% uh, on, on uh, June 26, 2017. We would need to reach 24,000. 710 people with the gospel in the next year. 24,710 people. That is astronomical. That's a big vision to reach 24,710 people in one year. Now, and then let me tell you that, and let me tell you this. 95% of Christians in North America have never personally led anyone to faith. 95% of Christians in North America have never personally led anyone to faith. Think about that. Think of the lion population. If only 5% of the lion population reproduced, lions would be extinct. If we, uh, if we care about God's vision, if we care about God's heart, if we care about the local economy, we can't be satisfied with that. In fact, not only have only 5% ever led anyone to faith, but 98%, according to Barna, 98% of Christians have not even shared their faith in the past year. They've taken their mina, and they've hid it in a handkerchief, and said, I'm just going to hold on. I'm just going to survive. I'm just going to keep hold of this mina, and, and I'll have it here. I'm not willing to take a risk. I'm not willing to step out in faith. I'm going to hold on to it. And I have to ask why. Why is this? I, I could sit here and I could preach about it all day long, but, but it doesn't really answer why. why. Why are so many of us just okay 
with just going by and hiding our mina in a handkerchief? Well, I think there's a few, few reasons. And first of all, I'd say oftentimes we confuse the idea of hospitality for evangelism. We confuse hospitality for evangelism. We, we, we decide we're, we're more willing to just invite people to church. Oh, and, that, and, we'll, and we'll say, oh, man, I was out evangelizing this week and I invited people to church. Well, that, my friends, is not evangelism. That's hospitality. That's great, but it's not evangelism. Also, we're much more willing to make friends rather than disciples. We're afraid that if we speak up, we'll lose friends. We're more comfortable with friends than making disciples. So we over-busy ourselves with good ministry, good ministry, but we forget that Jesus commands us to seek first his kingdom. We busy ourselves with things that make us feel good and make us feel like we're doing the work. But in reality, if we take a step back and we evaluate these ministries, they're not really kingdom-focused. They make us feel better about ourselves, but that's about it. Because if we were kingdom-focused, if we were seeking first His kingdom, we'd get uncomfortable. We'd have to take a leap of faith. I think also we, we feel, feel scared, we feel ill-equipped, we feel like those disciples, as they're entering Jerusalem, they're scared, they don't know what's about to happen, and, and, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, but yet we are fully equipped. We are fully equipped because if you are reconciled to Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit dwelling within you. The same spirit that, that, that was upon Jesus when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples. He has the authority. He's given us that authority. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. We have to do something about this. We, we have a, not only have we been equipped with the Spirit, but we also have a testimony. I think, of, think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. All right? John, he, she meets Jesus for all of maybe an hour to three hours max. Not very long. But yet she goes back and has a dramatic impact on her community. Why? Because she simply, said, she simply shared what Jesus had done. She said, come see a man who's told me all that I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? It says, because of her testimony, many believed. Because of her testimony, many believed. So not only do you have the Spirit dwelling in you, but you also have a testimony of what God has done personally in your life. How he's taking you from somebody who's far from him, in rebellion towards him, and he's brought you near. And there's been, been a transformation in your wants, in your desires, and now you're living for him as king of your life. And it's not because you're, you're enslaved to him. And it's not because he's lording over this in a, in, a, in a wicked way, in a mean way. But because it brings you joy and delight. And your life is satisfied because of the joy that we have in Christ. He's given us this testimony. So how do we respond? What do we do? How do our lives look different because of this? Well, I think first of all, we need to truly evaluate ourselves. We need to think about this performance review. 
And many of us need to repent. We need to repent. We need to stop doing what we're doing and turn around. We need to acknowledge that what we're doing is is not God's plan. We we need to turn away from that. We need to acknowledge that before God. And, And then we need to take steps of obedience this week. Not next week, not next year, this week. The Great Commission, I've, I've referenced it a few times. I'll reference it again. It says, make disciples, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them, what? To observe all that I've commanded you. He doesn't say, teach them everything I've commanded. That would be a totally different, to- totally different thing if he just said, teach them. I think all, most of us would say, man, I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm growing in the Word. I pat myself on the back. I am growing as a disciple. No, he says, teach them to observe it. Our goal isn't to just, to just soak up information. Our goal is to take what we can and then apply it in our lives. And so what can we do this week? Well, I'll give you a few ideas. We can, we can, we can begin uh, to make a list of people in our lives. We can identify people who are far from God that we know, that, that, that God has placed you in a relationship with. He's placed you there for a purpose. And you can begin to just make a list of these people. That's a simple step of obedience that you can take this week, is just by beginning to make a list of people that you know that are far from God, that need to hear about Jesus. And then you can begin to pray for them on a regular basis. Maybe that's daily. I have an alarm on my phone. It goes off at 10.02 every morning. 10.02, it reminds me of Luke 10.2 when Jesus says, uh, the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And so I'm praying for, my, for this list every day at 10.02. I'm praying for, for the Lord to bring about a harvest and to raise up laborers to enter into that harvest. So you can do the same thing. I encourage you maybe to begin praying regularly, maybe even fasting over this list of names. There I go, stepping on maybe a few more toes. All right? But, but, but seriously, seeking God's desire. Lord, use me. Use me in these people's lives to, to, to bring them from, from enemies of God to your loved children. Use me. So we begin to pray. We begin to fast. And then we can begin to engage these people. As we begin to pray and fast over these names, I, I guarantee it, we're going to have opportunities in our, in our lives to share the gospel with them. I, a few years ago, I was serving as associate pastor of youth at my home church, and this, this girl who was in our youth group, her name was Caroline. Uh, Caroline was actually my pastor's daughter, and we were walking through the, the, this simple task of, of evangelism, and, and she was saying, oh, you don't, you don't know my friends. Uh, many of you young people probably think the same thing. You don't know my friends. They're never going to, they, they'll never. I mean, this is like, she was, she was a cool kid in her school, and so she had a reputation to maintain. And, and she, you know, my friends, they're these cheerleaders, and, and they're not into this at all. So, uh, you know, I don't know about this, Tom. I said, well, just, just begin to pray. I forget her friend's name. Just begin to pray every day for this friend of yours. And we came back the next week and said, have you been praying for your friend? She said, you'll never believe what happened this week. I've been praying for her every day, and on Friday, she just broke down before me. 
I said, Caroline, how can you, how can you have such hope in your life? And it gave, me, it gave her an opportunity to share the message of Jesus with her. So begin praying for these people and begin seeking ways to engage them. Maybe, maybe it won't be such low-hanging fruit like that, right? Maybe it's, it's not going to be someone who just says, hey, can you tell me how I can have a relationship with Jesus? Does that ever happen to anybody? I, I'm praying for that person. All right, if you find them, let me know where they are. All right? But, but it, is, it probably won't be like that, but, but, but maybe it, you know, we can begin to share something God has done recently in our lives. When we engage them, you know, hey, let me share with you something that's happened to me recently. And just share what God is doing. Maybe it's, it's a simple, simple engaging them and saying, uh, can, I, can I pray for you this week? Is there something, what would you ask God to do in your life? Could I pray something for you this week? And maybe you can begin to share with them what it means to follow Jesus as your king. There, there are great tools out there. There's, there's lots of evangelism tools that you could get yourself acquainted with. If you have a smartphone, they're now all on your smartphone. And it's, it, they, we, it's just extremely simple, right? Uh, we, we can just bring out our phone and, and swipe through it and just read some things. But, but there's all sorts of tools out there. I'm sure if you've been a Southern Baptist for long, maybe you've gone through faith. I went through faith when I was in like seventh grade. And each letter stands for a, a point of, of our faith. And, and I remember doing this. Or I've been through evangelism explosion. I've, I've learned the, the four laws. I've, I've done it. And what's the best tool? The best tool is the one that you use. So just use it. Get familiar with the tool. Whether that's the Romans road, whether that's the bridge, I use the three circles. I'd be glad to share that with you. But just use that tool, whatever you're comfortable with, and begin to engage people. If, if we hide it, if we, if we hide it in our handkerchief, what happens in the end? It's taken from him. The opportunities that he would have had are taken away from him. The, the task is huge. I would say it's impossible. To think of the 24,710 people, that's, what, that's my goal this year. 24,710 people. That's huge. I, I mean, that, that is a task that I can't accomplish on my own. And the task that he's given all of us is impossible when we really think about it. But like, like the disciples, we, we feel completely unprepared for this. But Jesus has promised us that he will be with us always. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us until the task is finished. Until the task is finished, he will be with us. Because he says here to these, these uh, servants, engage in business, when? Until I come. There's no end date to it. It's until he comes. So let's get busy with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.